Michael. How, how would you like a programme about yourself to open? What were the first things you'd like to have said or to say about yourself in a programme to be? God. Do you what? I don't know. Finally got it. <laughs> it took long enough, but she got there in the end. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight. She says she likes leggy things. Things like athletics, but especially dancing. One of her favourite shows on TV is the celebrity come dancing type of show. And that's why in her flat, her bed sit flat, she has the music from the dance show Chicago on the CD player. You French vanilla or you can have vanilla chai spice. She says she probably likes watching dancing so much because she doesn't have the use of her own legs. And it is a bit of a coincidence that she has the music from Chicago on because Chicago is the city where the bedsit flat is. It is, and I always thought it was Also in the flat, she has a pile of crossword puzzles cut from the paper. They're under a table and they're waiting to be done. Under the same table, she has 24 rolls of toilet paper. Always 24 rolls. The crossword puzzles are a clue to her incredible present, and the toilet paper is a clue to her unbelievable past. Why did you start drinking? No particular reason. I mean, pure, I, I, I don't want to say peer pressure because I was never pressured into drinking. It was just the thing to do when you're with your peers. You know, I was 17, everyone was drinking, I was drinking. And I knew the risks I was taking, because both my parents were alcoholic. And I knew there was a really good chance I would be too, but I didn't really want to pay that any attention, apparently. Then I went into nursing school, and I was a good nurse. I loved my job. I loved nursing. I still remember patients. Do you? Yeah. I remember a farmer called John, and I talk about John to this day. I always thought I had an idea of what it must be like to have a stroke, like to be kind of still in your head but not be able to make your body cooperate. But I always remember this big old farmer and his name was John something and we'd get him up in the morning, we'd put him in the chair and, you know, he couldn't speak, he couldn't. And one day I was getting him up and putting him in the chair and he started to cry. It just hit me in that like a light bulb moment when John was sitting there crying. The frustration, the frustration for somebody not to be able to get it out, you know. And it was while she was nursing that Dee met a remarkable man. Here's Mills and Boone for you now. He was a patient and I couldn't stand him. I could not stand him and he couldn't stand me. He was very, very young and he had had major surgery. We were very young. He was 21. What am I saying? I was 22. And from my point of view, he was feeling sorry for himself and he was doing nothing to help himself get better. And so I was very hard on him. You know, I was on night duty and I'd go home in the morning and I'd leave him. I expect you to this and I expect you to that and I expect you to the other. Oh, I don't know. I expect you to get out of bed and sit for an hour. And he couldn't keep food down. I expect you to have two spoons of porridge and not throw it up, you know. Stuff like that. And I was at my grad ball, and I saw this guy, you know, and he, God, he was gorgeous.
gorgeous. Lovely shiny blonde hair, big brown eyes like a cow's. He was gorgeous. And I looked again and I said, I know him. I like, no, I couldn't possibly know him. He's really good looking. I wouldn't forget that, you know. And he comes over to me and says, hi, how are you? I go, oh, I'm, I'm fine, how are you? And then he told me who he was. I couldn't believe it. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I could not believe the change. He looked, he absolutely was gorgeous. I'll never forget the shine on the hair. I really won't. And so he was with another nurse who I didn't like anyway. But they weren't at our table. So I was trying to plot and scheme. How now was I going to set, you know, up a contact or a connection? So I, I, I volunteered to sell raffle tickets. And I made sure I sold him raffle tickets. Now, everyone else, they only had to get their phone number, but on his tickets, for some reason, he had to get his address and phone number. I can't think why. And sure enough, I called him up and I invited him out and we went out. And they got married and together they had two children. Best thing I ever did was have those two children. And my husband adored them, adored them. So while you're nursing, are you drinking? Uh, at the end, yeah. After my husband got sick, I drank on duty. And thank God I was caught and fired, and rightly so. And so I never nursed again after that because then I stayed at home and nursed my husband, which of course facilitated my drinking too. The children had no security. They had no consistency. They had no, you know, they didn't know from one minute to the next what was going to happen. Was I going to like decide we'd all stay in a hotel that night or, you know. I didn't beat them, which doesn't make things better or worse. I just, I was a crap mother. The, the, the addiction was more important. The addiction was more important than anything. And the fact that your husband loved the man was around and did that not provide him with consistency? See, he was sick. Okay. He was dying. He began dying. Yeah, he began dying like just after my son was born, about two or three months after. And so he wasn't physically capable. My daughter was three and my son was one when he died and my drinking went to pot. And do you ever cut yourself some slack and say, well, God, I was a young woman and my husband died? Oh, please. Cut, that's not cutting yourself some slack. That's nonsense. But you must have been devastated. Yeah, but I knew what alcoholism was, I knew what addiction was, and I knew that my children needed me. And where was I? Looking for vodka. I mean, come on. But you were grieving, you don't. Oh, but, 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 crap. One of my guilts, another one of my guilts, is the fact that I know that he died worrying about my drinking. He knew my drinking was a problem. And I let him die worrying about that. And then the States, why, why decide to up and go to the States? It was a geographical escape. I wanted to get away from everyone who was on my back about my drinking. Things were just getting way too tight. And it was an opportunity to do that, so I did it. In the States, Deirdre had a brother married with no children living outside Chicago. She was on the way to a nursing job in Los Angeles, but he persuaded her to stay a while. Herself and the two children stayed with him and his wife for a short period and then moved out. She says thinking about it now, he probably asked her to stay in Illinois because he knew at some stage soon the family was about to break up and he wanted to be nearby to help. 
We were in a trailer where there was no plumbing or anything. And they hadn't been in school. And so the sheriff came and um, they told me to bring the children to the police station. If I didn't bring them, they'd put out a warrant for my arrest. Well, I brought them. And I mean, I knew. If you like, the, the show was over for that one. I knew. So uh, I brought them up there and I said, was there anybody? I didn't really want to put them into foster care. Was there anybody? And I said, told them about my brother. And they made me leave after they ascertained that my brother was coming. And I said goodbye to the children and he came and took them. And he has raised them. And subsequently had children of his own, but for a newly married couple to just suddenly have a family like that overnight, I'm sure it wasn't easy. What ages were the kids? Seven and five. And what did they say to you in the police station, the children? They were, they didn't, I don't remember them really saying anything. They were confused and I was trying hard to do the brave, you know, be brave and not be bawling, crying and it was just, it didn't hit me then. But it was the best thing for the children. And did you see them afterwards? Again, because of my own fault, um, I saw them occasionally, sporadically. I was inconsistent about that too, you know. So finally my brother said, well look, you're either all in or you're all out. And so I went all out. I always missed the children, but as long as I had enough booze in me, I could handle it. It's still... I kind of miss what it could have been. Because I would have been a great mother. And we would have had a great time. But I wasn't and we didn't. So that's the way it is. <sighs> then Deirdre met and fell in love with a man named Fred. Do you remember your first night on the street? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I was drunk. I went, I had money in my pocket. Fred threw me out of the apartment. A big, long drug-involved story. Fred did drugs. And um, cocaine, heroin, all that stuff. And um, through a bizarre paranoia that comes with doing cocaine, he threw me out of the house and I happened to have some money in my pocket so I went to the bar where we went. I can't remember the name of the bar which is really annoying me and um, I hooked up with the guy, I was drunk and we slept under a bridge and it was snowing and so to get out of the snow we crawled, literally this was like a little hole we crawled into and um, no blankets, nothing, and I don't know how we didn't die. We should have died. We should have frozen to death, but we didn't. I got up the next day and my life as a homeless person began. 
That was a good alley. See, there's a dumpster. Now, in my day, in my day, I think this was something to be bragging about, but I knew where every single dumpster was. And we knew the good dumpsters and the bad dumpsters, and we knew the heavy drinkers and the ones who weren't heavy. So we knew whose dumpster it was worth going to. So what was a good dumpster? One that's full of beer cans. So? There was one, and uh, this guy used to drink, drink Tecate, which is a Mexican beer. And he drank, he liked his Tecate, and we used to call it the Tecate. We would talk about him, God bless the Tecate man. Because we'd be there like for 20 minutes or half an hour, crushing beer cans and stuff. And how many cans would you have to collect to make any money? Oh God, I have no idea. You'd have to have two big bin bags full of crushed cans, at least, and that might get you a six pack. And beer is real cheap over here. And of course, we, we drank the lowest beer of the low. Oh, that's another thing. We used to go down this alley because the homeless shelter is down this way too. But you see the ashtray? Yeah. That's a big thing homeless people do. Now that ashtray was useless, but you knew where the good ashtrays were for cigarette butts. Like rich offices and things where people didn't care. And hospitals are brilliant. Why? Because people on their way in, they stick their cigarette into the sand and they might only have taken two puffs out of it because they're nervous going to see the doctor or something. So you just pick them all up. You go through the ashtrays and pick them up. Was there anything you said to yourself, if I ever stop being homeless, there's things that... I swear I'd never run out of toilet paper. I have 24 rolls of toilet paper in my house at all times. There were four in the homeless group that Deirdre used to go around with. Randy, Don, Wobbly and Deirdre herself. We're outside a modern hotel beside a railway station. There's a locomotive running in the background. Deirdre's about to tell the story of the day that Randy came into a lot of money. He got a settlement. And so he took the four of us to stay here for the night, which was like the ultimate in luxury. A bed, toilet paper, bath, big time, that was good. Flushing toilet, oh yes. And it had a swimming pool. And the other two had happened, the day it came in, the other two had gotten jobs at the daily job center. And so they were off working. So Randy and I went and he bought a car and drove it off the lot. And it was so cool to be with someone who just like bought a car. And uh, we went and he bought me some clothes and stuff and we went swimming. It was great. That was the 3rd of July. And um, so the other two, <coughs> excuse me, came back from um, work. And we all settled in and we started drinking and so on and so forth. And Don realized but that Randy and I had gone shopping, that we had bought the car. I don't know how, what he thought, where he thought everything came from. I mean, we bought clothes for the guys too. And um, decided that there was something going on between me and Randy and a big row ensued. And in the end, he hit me on the side of the head. I fell down, he stomped on the back of my neck. And when he realized the extent of the damage, he ran out of the room. And the last thing I remember him saying is, you stupid bitch, as the door closed. I do remember that. And I wasn't even aware of the extent of damage that had been done to me, but I couldn't move. And I knew I couldn't move. So I was laying on the floor and I couldn't move. 
and when the other two came back they were really drunk and one guy decided he kept saying to me it's all that vodka you drank that happened to me once and so on and I had to beg and plead with them to get me up onto the bed they got me up onto the bed and uh, there I lay they got up the next morning and they left which really bothered me a lot I've never seen them since, needless to say, and if I ever do, I'll be running them over real quick. So I lay there till the checkout people came to say, you know, you're past your checkout time type thing. And of course, they called an ambulance. The ambulance was right there. And on my way through the lobby, the manager of the hotel stopped and asked me if I was going to sue them. I'm laying there on a gurney, quadriplegic, with a bloody neck collar on me. And this woman's wondering if, she, if I'm going to sue them. Now, when I went to the emergency room, they called in a neurologist, and apparently the neurologist said she'll never walk again. The neurologist was wrong. She was determined to walk again, so she did rehab and pushed herself through the rehab. She had surgery, and she got back up on her feet, but only for a short while, and she's now in an electric wheelchair. And did you not want to tear home and, and into the oh, bosom God, of the no. no. God, no, because that was when they didn't know if I was alive or dead. Well, sure, that was the time to come home as the prodigal daughter. God, no. Oh, no. Listen, I know you haven't known if I was alive or dead, and I've been ignoring you lately, and I've completely screwed up not only my life, but your lives as well. And by the way, I broke my neck. Can I come home now? I don't think so. I hadn't the guts anyway. After my neck was broken, and I finally got out of the rehab places, I went to live with these people who were alcoholics too, so it was great. So we all sat around drinking. Then about three months later, we were at this party. I'll never forget it. We were at a party and the booze was free. Alcoholic heaven. And I had about two beers and I turned to this guy beside me who had a car. And I said, take me to the emergency room. And he said, why? I said, just take me to the emergency room. And honest to God, I had no idea why I wanted to go myself. And so he took me and I said, you can go now, I'll be staying. And he's like, no, no, I said, go. And I went in and I said, my name's Deirdre Merriman. I'm feeling suicidal again. Oh, and by the way, I'm an alcoholic. Never had a drink after that. But I had a terror. I went to a treatment facility, which was very nice, very John of God's. Now, I'm not knocking John of God's, God. I'm not knocking down a gods at all because I was there myself and I wasn't ready and I didn't work it. So it's, it's all in your attitude. You have to want it and I didn't want it. You know, everybody needs a different type of treatment and a different level of treatment and a different approach. But I went to a very John of God's place where they were very nice. And I did not need that. I needed to be torn apart. I needed to be stripped down to the bone and I knew it. I knew it. And I... My mantra was, whatever it takes, I was willing, see this time I was willing to do whatever it took to get sober, whatever it took. So I had my 28 days that they give you at this nice place. And on my last week I went to see my counsellor and I said, this, it's not going to work, it's just not going to work. And I said, I need to go somewhere that's really, really bad and tough. And so she said there was this place called Gateway. And I said, well, all right, then that's where I need to go. And she's like, I, I don't know. She's thinking it's be too rough for me and too tough. I said, that's where I need to go. So she called and they said they didn't have room. And she called again and they said they didn't have a room. 
So I started calling them every hour to try and talk to the director. And I couldn't get to talk to the director. I couldn't get, and I explained, and I explained. So Friday, I was due to leave at 12, and I was going to stay in this shelter until the Monday where I had planned to go into Gateway. So <laughs> I got the director's assistant. I said, I'm leaving here in an hour, which means I should be at your place at about 3 o'clock. You can have a bed or not have a bed, but I'm not leaving. And that's what I did. And they gave me a bed. And they did exactly what I needed to have done. They kicked my ass. She's okay, Ronan, you mom. need to move in right now. Yeah. Sorry, okay. Hi, Marie, how are you? Okay. What was your blood sugar? We're in the lift of the apartment building where Deirdre has her bed set. Yeah, you've been cheating too at church, he told me. It's a special building. Everyone here has some disability or other. In the lobby, Deirdre has a poster up with a map to the nearest polling station. That's the voting thing that I made. It's coming up to the midterm elections in America. To try and help encourage people to get out and vote. Voter registration is just one of her campaigns. She's also in an association promoting the United Nations. Mobilize public opinion in support of African issues. In spite of the challenges in And here, she's at an event to publicise the crisis in Darfur. See, I don't think there should be any countries anymore. I think we should be one world. I mean, if you're starving and you come to my house, what am I going to say? Too bad? I'm going to feed you. Well, it should be the same principle across the world. But then you have people flooding into the wealthier countries and destabilizing their economies. And oh, God, I mean, wouldn't that be awful? That's the big thing in America at the moment, isn't it? Of course it is. God love them. People might have to do without the iPod or the cell phone they have stuck in their bloody ears. Or, I mean, do they need all that? You go down the street nowadays and you say excuse me to someone, they don't hear you because they've got stuff in their ears. Hello? Uh-huh. My name is Dee. How can I help you? Deirdre also takes calls on a hotline for rape victims. Okay, okay. Now I'm here to help you but I need to understand exactly what it is that you're saying. Okay? Yes. Deirdre's funded by the state, her accommodation and her education. She's doing a degree in politics and psychology. The trip to and from the university can take up to two hours each way, depending on the availability of wheelchair accessible buses. I don't read books for pleasure in semester time. I don't know if you noticed, but under my table there's a stack of newspapers. And those are all the crossword sections of my daily paper. Because I don't have time to read the daily paper either, and so I save all them up. And then when I'm on vacation holiday, when semester breaks up, I have a crossword orgy. So, I just, you know, the reality is there isn't time. If you want to get the grades and if you want to do the stuff, you just have to except the fact that all other life goes out the window. You know, it just, that's the way it is. I mean, if I was happy with C's, that'd be okay, but I'm not. I accept a B begrudgingly. So, you know, if that's what I want and that's the way I want, then I have to put the work in. You know, you get what you pay for. This is 401 Honours College. It's a seminar on the Bush presidency and the case for impeachment. 
and this is the fun part of my day. I get to run my mouth and give my opinion. During that draft, though, the method to getting around the draft was the National Guard. So if the president decides to deploy troops overseas, which state does he pick to deploy them from? I mean, does he say, oh, well, Illinois is looking pretty secure, OK? Back at Deirdre's bedsit, there are photos. Her children, now adults, other members of her family, a child victim of famine in Africa, and on the wall beside her bed, two photos of Fred. He's dead. I suppose that's kind of an interesting story in that he used to beat me up and he's still the great love of my life. Why did he beat you up? Because Fred the addict beat me up and I really don't think he was beating me, he was beating himself. But... Well, that's all very well, but... Yeah, I know that's all fine and dandy, but you have to remember I was in addiction as well. I was drinking my head off too. Possibly I felt I deserved it, maybe, I don't know. When did you see your children again after having been homeless? Did they, did they stay with your brother in Chicago? They moved back to Ireland. And uh, I didn't, I saw my daughter when, um, the first time I went home I saw her. And I've seen her on and off and we're in touch on and off since. I haven't seen my son. I've seen pictures and stuff and I know about him but I haven't seen him. What was the first meeting with your daughter like? Oh God. Tough for both of us. It was very emotional. It was very, very emotional. It was very confused for both of us. I don't think either one of us expected this big rush of feelings. And well, For me, of course, it was overwhelming love and nothing else and shame and regret and apology and all of that. But for her, I would think it was, you bloody bitch, I love you, mummy. You know? It had all of that, why did you do this? Why did you leave me? Why did you... you... And in terms of retrieving something, do, do you ever want to get back into a position where you are her mother or where... I would love to, but it's too late. Deirdre's now in her mid-40s. If she gets her degree, she'd like to work as a political lobbyist and she wants to stay living in Chicago. You know, I heard this at an AA meeting. She, this girl, she was talking about, you know, and we do, we get into this martyr thing, you know. We're like, it's, it's no wonder I drink, my life is so bad, and blah, blah, blah. But she was there and she was talking about this, and then she said, you know, she said, somebody turned around to me and they just said, get off the cross, would you? We need the wood. <laughs> That's I love it. I cracked up laughing. <laughs> 